Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka, and today we're in conversation with Derek Wallace, the VP and Global Dengue Program Head at Takeda. Derek has been at Takeda since 2013, but has over 16 years of experience in clinical development, infectious diseases, and medical affairs from working at Merck, Novartis, and Sanofi Pasteur. Now, the COVID-19 vaccine has, of course, taken up the entire conversation this year in the world of vaccinations, or indeed in the world of conversations itself. But the existence of coronavirus does not mean that other illnesses and threatening diseases take a backseat. They need to be tackled front and center because they continue to claim lives. One such disease is dengue. Takeda is on the cusp of having a vaccine for dengue approved. And today we talk about how dengue affects the world, which regions it hit the most, what the impact of the vaccine will be in alleviating the threat it presents, What happens behind the scenes to get the vaccine approved? And how does a company plan for execution when there's no clear date of estimation of when the approvals are likely to come in? We also talk about whether or not the speed in COVID vaccine approvals will have a long-lasting impact on all vaccine approvals going forward. For this and more, listen on. Hi there, Derek. Thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with us this morning. We're really excited to have you. It's a real pleasure, Bree. Thanks for inviting me. Beautiful. Let's kick this off. Um, I would love if you can give an introduction to yourself, Derek, uh, and your role at Takeda. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a physician who was originally trained in Australia, and I've been working on dengue vaccine development for more than 12 years now. Uh, My current role is at Takeda, working on Takeda's tetravalent dengue vaccine, and my role there is as global program lead. Uh, which means that I have the overall responsibility for for the development and availability of uh, of this exciting vaccine candidate. That's amazing. Um, before we talk about the vaccine um, itself, can we can you maybe help set the context for dengue? Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about which regions are most affected by it? How many lives does it claim every year? Uh, what pressure does it actually put on the healthcare system? Just a little bit of context would be fantastic. Dengue is a hugely important disease uh, in many parts of the world. In fact, back in 2019, the World Health Organization named dengue one of its top 10 threats to public health. And the reason for that is that it is so widespread. Uh, It essentially affects uh, tropical and subtropical countries uh, across the globe, particularly in Asia, um, to a slightly lesser extent in Latin America. And the burden in Africa is probably under-recognized. Uh, It's a disease which is caused by a flavivirus, uh, and that flavivirus is spread by mosquitoes. Um, So it's a vector-borne viral disease. In fact, it's the most important uh, vector-borne viral uh, illness. It uh, is caused by four dengue serotypes, and those serotypes can circulate uh, at the same time in in some endemic countries. But typically, you'll get outbreaks of dengue, uh, which are seasonal. Um, but they're also cyclical, so they may occur every three to five years, and they're often associated with a switch in serotype. Um, so essentially, if there's a lot of dengue 2 in previous years, the dengue 1 strain may come into a country and cause a significant outbreak. And really the impact of dengue is, is in that situation during epidemics where hospital systems can be completely overrun. Uh, the, we've seen it parallels, I think, very similar situation with COVID, 
uh, where uh, the actual mortality rates are not particularly high, but the impact is very much upon uh, uh, the impact on healthcare systems uh, and the overrunning of healthcare systems, which impacts the kind of care that can be provided to, to non-COVID illness or, or to non-dengue illness. Yeah, wow. Uh, I mean, I uh, many years ago, uh, almost I think 20 years ago, my sister actually had dengue. So I've had an experience firsthand seeing um, how terrifying it can be uh, if you're going through this terrible disease. So when I actually found out that Takeda was on the verge of releasing a vaccine, um, you know, for dengue, it was definitely personal for me. Fascinating to hear about your, your personal experience with dengue. Uh, I myself lived in in Singapore for a number of years and, and and had personal experiences with dengue as well. And I think it's really hard if you if you don't live in a dengue endemic area to understand the nature of the impact of dengue uh, um, on, on on those who who live uh, at risk of dengue. Uh, it's a disease that has no specific treatment, and although death is is rare, uh, it's a very sudden outcome, uh, and so it causes a lot of fear in communities, particularly during epidemics. So you asked me about the the uh, the sort of our, our path to to, to uh, you know our pathway in development, and uh, this is a, a fascinating story. Uh, we at Takeda have developed this vaccine since 2013, but the history of the vaccine is is, is much longer than that. Um, I mentioned before that dengue is caused by four dengue serotypes, and our vaccine is based upon the dengue two serotype. And that virus was originally identified back in the 1980s in Thailand. Uh, it was then characterized and attenuated by, uh, by the CDC in, uh, in the USA. And some of the early phase one work was done by a company called Envirogen. Mm -hmm. um, we at Takeda took this vaccine candidate at the beginning of phase two, and we've taken it through a very large scale study. Um, in fact, the largest interventional study ever conducted by Takeda uh, in which we uh, enrolled 20,000 children aged between four and 16 across eight different dengue endemic countries in, in Asia and in Latin America. Uh, and, uh, this study is about four and a half years long. And uh, after three years of follow-up, we felt we were in a position to provide the, the, the data to regulatory authorities and, and we're currently uh, under review. Wow, that's that's such a long road. It's it's incredible uh, the stuff that has to happen behind the scenes uh, for it to finally come on board. Is there any um, estimate of when it it could potentially be approved? We submitted our file into the European authorities in March of, of this year, and shortly afterwards, we submitted to a number of dengue endemic countries who are participating in a process uh, known as EU M for All. Um, this used to be called Article 58, and it's a process by which the CHMP, the um, European authorities, assist in the review uh, uh, of a product that is also under parallel review by the by individual countries. Uh, so, for example, we have Colombia, Argentina, and Brazil in uh, Latin America that are participating in this process. Each of those countries get exactly the same file that Europe gets. Right. Uh, and the reviews occur in parallel where uh, the, the uh, comments and the questions that come from regulators are shared between the regulators. Yeah. Uh, each individual country will clearly make its own choice, but it strengthens the, the quality of review. Um, so we're in that process now uh, and we would expect the CHMP opinion 
uh, before the end of our fiscal year at Takeda, which is before March of next year. Got it. Very interesting. Well, um, can you talk to me a little bit about how, if and how, the relationship that Takeda and you know and other pharma manufacturers have with regulators, if that's changed specifically because the COVID vaccines have been approved so quickly. And I obviously understand that COVID is a pandemic and it's gotten, um, you know, it, it's been the only thing that's that, that's that been like front and center of absolutely everything. So I understand it's a little bit different, but I'm curious if that's changed the expectations of how quickly or what the process would be of, you know, of approvals for vaccines going forward. I think what's happened with uh, with COVID is um, absolutely fascinating. It's uh, incredible, really, the speed at which these vaccines were developed and, and approved. Um, I think there are certainly things that we can learn and, and regulators can learn about how to be efficient in, in the review of products. But I, I think it's unrealistic to expect that we get that kind of speed of review uh, uh, going forward for, for other products that aren't linked to, to a global pandemic. Um, so there are existing mechanisms. Uh, we, we already have things like priority reviews and accelerated reviews where agencies can uh, can label certain products as ones that, that they put more effort and, and, and priority into. Um, so I think that that process will, will continue and maybe potentially be, again, uh, more efficient or expanded. But I, I don't see it as fundamentally changing the, the interaction between industry and, and, uh, and regulators. I think it's important for your listeners to, to know that that uh, we have a, a large number of external stakeholders uh, when we're developing a vaccine. And uh, once a vaccine gets gets licensed by a regulatory authority, really all that does is, is make it available to to people to uh, to purchase that vaccine privately. Mm-hmm. The real public health benefit of a vaccine is when it's used in a public program. Oh. And the uh, process by which a vaccine gets into a public program is a second step. Um, where regulatory, uh, uh, where uh, recommending bodies uh, essentially decide how a vaccine should be used in their specific setting. Mm. Um, so really, it's a two-stage process, and our, our kind of key stakeholders are both regulators, but but not only regulators. That's really interesting. Could you talk about the second process then? So what happens once it is approved? And I understand that, you know, it obviously means that, you know, it's 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 illegal and it's okay for it to be used and people can buy it. But can you talk a little bit about how does it normally get, uh, you know, introduced through these public programs? And I understand it would be different in different com- countries. Um, but by and large, what, what does that process look like? How long does it take? What are the key bumps or challenges that come up in that process? So that's very specific in, in uh, different countries, and certainly for for our um, uh, for Tax Zero Zero Three, it is particularly complicated because we're going to so many countries in parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, ordinarily, for a vaccine, it might be licensed first in in say Europe or the US, and eventually get to places where dengue is very important. May, maybe a number of years later, um, what we've done is is really prioritise uh, early registrations in the places where the vaccines needed the most. Uh, and we've done that in, um, I mentioned already, Argentina, Colombia, and Brazil. We've also submitted in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Malaysia. Um, we will be submitting into Thailand, Sri Lanka, uh, Mexico, and the US um, in the coming months. So we've got a large number of very different uh, settings uh, in which the vaccine um, will be, uh, or, yeah, we hope will be licensed, but, but also where it will be considered for 
for for public programs, which is which is really what the recommending bodies do. So we need a plan that's specific to each country. Um, we need to provide as much information as we can on the uh, on the, the risk and benefits of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to understand the epidemiology in those particular settings, and, and essentially the re- the recommending bodies will will uh, decide how the vaccine should be used for their particular context. Um, an example might be in a place that has a very high burden of, of dengue. Uh, the age at which people uh, get sick with dengue will be low. Um, you know, the younger children will be more affected. So programs should really target those younger children. Uh, in a place where the burden of disease, the, the incidence is lower, uh, an example of this might be Malaysia, uh, the, uh, peak, the age at which the burden of disease is highest might be in, in, in young adults. And so that's going to have implications for how the vaccine should be rolled out in a public program. And it's those recommending bodies that will, will essentially make that decision. Uh, that's often a lengthy process, um, so it may happen uh, you know, years after the, the vaccine is approved. Our assumption is it will be somewhere between two to four years in most places. Right. Wow. So interesting that it has to be so specific to different countries, and it makes perfect sense. When you say recommending bodies, does that mean the regulator or the, the recommending bodies are actually separate from the regulator? So they're separate from the regulators. So the regulators uh, essentially give a, an authorization, a marketing authorization or a license, mm-hmm. and that uh, um, essentially allows a, a company to launch a vaccine in that country. Uh, in terms of how the the, uh, the the ministries will want to use the vaccine in a public program in which the government is paying for that vaccine, um, that's what the recommending bodies are involved with. Um, so these are usually a group of, of experts that are separate from the regulators, uh, and there's a very formal framework for these in most countries. Um, uh, the National Immunisation Advisory Groups, or, or NITAGs, is, is what they're commonly called. Interesting. And I'm curious, what kind of role, if any, do organisations like UNICEF or Gavi have to play in this? Because clearly for COVID, um, you know, they're one of... Um, the the big buyers as they seem to be for a lot of vaccines would that would they also be you know one of the organizations kind of taking part here and doing their bit to make sure it it gets the places with uh, you know low research low resources or low income. Yeah, so th- these organizations have a key role uh, in, in many vaccines, and because of the nature of some of the countries that uh, dengue is prevalent in, um, I would expect they'll have a big role to play with dengue as well. Um, one group that you didn't mention that I think is key here is, is the World Health Organization and, and the SAGE group. So I mentioned the uh, recommending bodies that are, uh, are national. Um, SAGE is, a, is essentially a recommending body that is global. Um, so although it doesn't recommend exactly how a vaccine should be used uh, in any individual country, it does provide a, a kind of a, a sort of some guidance on, on uh, um, that is a little bit more granular than, than the the, the type of uh, guidance is provided by regulators. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I mean, it, it, it clearly sounds like there's a lot of planning that goes on and there's 
obviously a lot uh, of work too, but then much of it is out of your control once the papers are submitted for, you know, when the approval comes in, right? Uh, how do you plan for rollout then in such a situation? I mean, you don't have an exact timeline uh, for when approvals would come in. What kind of contingency plans go in place if the approvals come in sooner than expected or much later than expected? Uh, you've, you've hit upon a, a really key challenge for us, Bree. Uh, th this is, uh, um, you know, we have to make assumptions about how long the regulatory process will take. Uh, and so we can have a base case for when we would expect to, to launch a, a vaccine following an approval. But, but of course, that can be faster than we expect or, or slower than we expect. Um, I think the situation where it's faster than we expect is one that we spend a lot of time thinking about because the, the rationale for it being faster is, is clearly that there is uh, maybe an ongoing epidemic in that country and a very clear um, sort of you know, need for an acceleration of review, a bit like we saw with the COVID pandemic. And if we are in that situation, you know, we have a real obligation to make sure the vaccine is, is available in, in that sort of similar accelerated way. Um, so we essentially look at this as, as a sort of earliest and latest, uh, as well as a most likely. Um, and we, we, we plan to be as flexible as we can. Um, that clearly means our supply chain has to be uh, robust. Uh, we have to have a lot of scenario planning. Um, we do have a little bit of time, though, um, because there are some activities that have to occur prior to an, uh, launch after approval. Um, so we can't you know, sell the vaccine the day after we get uh, regulatory approval. Um, there are processes we need for importation, et cetera, that need to occur following approval. And, and these typically take a couple of months. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it is a key, um, a key challenge for us, um, but one we also see as, as absolutely critical and, and very much part of our mandate. Yeah, wow. What about the manufacturing, though? Is that something that is the is the idea that, um, you know, it's very likely to get approved and so the manufacturing happens it's only for it to get in motion and the distribution that takes time once the regulation comes through or does the manufacturing of the vaccine itself happen happens only once you know regulatory approval is given uh, if we waited to manufacture after approval we, we wouldn't be able to supply the kind of uh, demand that we would expect so we have to make a lot of investments that are essentially at risk um, so we have uh, been making uh, commercial material uh, for some time now in, at our contract manufacturer in Germany. Right. Um, and this, uh, this material is essentially building inventory so that we're able to manage uh, sort of, you know, a sudden, a sudden spike in demand. Um, so I think uh, one of the, the real challenges with, with vaccines is, you know, they're biological. Uh, and, and so there can be challenges in manufacturing. Right. And it's one of the things, again, that we spend a lot of time scenario planning uh, and in, uh, you know, concretely for, 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 for our dengue vaccine, um, we have been already manufacturing for months um, to build supply. Yeah, wow. Wow. And so oh, that's, that's obviously a significant financial risk, but obviously one that's, you know, a planned financial risk given, given what the clinical trials uh, results have said. The understanding would be that there's a, a very, very good chance that it would get approved and therefore it makes sense to make that investment. Yeah, so we're very confident uh, in, in, in the profile of the vaccine. And you know, I mentioned that we have three years of follow-up data. Um, our primary endpoint was after one year. And so we showed that the vaccine prevented dengue in both seropositive and seronegative individuals. So mm -hmm. those who've had dengue before, as well as those who haven't, at about 80%. So 80% efficacy in, the, in that first year. 
So we were we were clear um, even even a couple of years ago that there was potential in this vaccine, particularly against hospitalised dengue. Um, you know, I mentioned before the the impact on on healthcare systems and. One of the, the real problems with dengue is, is the, the sort of sudden uh, burden on hospital systems. And we showed uh, a greater than a 90% reduction in, in hospitalization uh, in the first 18 months. And we have data after three years now where that's still at around 80% reduction in hospitalization, uh, e even in the both, the, well, not even, but both in the seropositive and seronegative individuals. So our confidence is high that the vaccine has a has, a, has the, the potential to, to address some of the burden of dengue. Uh, and we wanted to make sure we make the appropriate investments to, to have the material um, you know, once, you know, if and when we receive uh, approval. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the, the, the fact that we're building, uh, that we're making uh, material now, but we've also built a, a, a factory specifically for making dengue vaccine. Yeah. Uh, the material we make now is coming from contract manufacturer. But the vaccine will be produced in a Takeda facility in a place called Singen in Germany mm. um, in, in the medium term. And, and that building is you know, built. That's amazing. Right. So in, in a scenario where the vaccines have been approved, the uh, you know plan with organizations that actually help with you know deciding how it's got to get out there is done. Um, what are then the biggest challenges in the distribution and logistics of the vaccine itself once all of these things happen? We sort of um, we we sort of kind of touched on some of those aspects in in the the, the need to be very careful in how we plan for supply uh, because you know that's the initial launch which is kind of the timing of demand but the the extent of demand is you know is is, is something we can uh, make assumptions around but but of course you know these are only going to be assumptions and. We can have a situation where in a big country like Brazil, um, there might be a significant outbreak uh, of dengue. And if that's the case, we might see demand that's, you know, a multiple of what we expected. And, and so we have to be ready to, to supply individual countries according to their demand. One of the, the things I think is really important for your listeners to, to think about is that the, the risk of dengue is not in a narrow age range like it is for, for, for many diseases. Um, so it's not like you're going to vaccinate a, a single cohort and, and, and reduce the burden of dengue. Um, so we may see, even in the private uh, um, uh, sector, when it, with private sales, that we have you know, people who are in their 40s, in their 50s, uh, people, you know, children, um, a big range of, of, of people who, for which vaccination is attractive. Um, and so it's very hard to... to to sort of predict the, that level of demand when the, the, the depth of demand um, could be potentially very high. That's very interesting. That yeah, that's it, it's interesting to note that it's it's like a moving target, right? Like there's no as opposed to some other diseases, there's no way actually to know how much it would be and what, what ranges uh, or what age ranges or individuals would be affected. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Well, the one question that I do have is that is, are these vaccines also like temperature sensitive, like the COVID ones? Uh, so they're, they're nowhere near as, as uh, temperature sensitive as some of the, the COVID vaccines, which require you know, deep freeze. Uh, these will be uh, more like a standard vaccine that requires a cold chain. Um, so there are, ch are challenges with the maintenance of a cold chain, but this is a, a fridge temperature. So it's uh, you know, it's essentially five to eight, uh, uh, sorry, two to eight degrees uh, Celsius. 
Right. Um, so this is this is sort of much more a standard vaccine that can be in a in a, a normal fridge in a in a in a physician's office. Right. Gotcha. Well, ho hopefully that makes things a tiny bit easier. Um, well, final question then, Derek. Uh, really curious. Post the pandemic, you know, because vaccine has become such a household word, right? Do you think that this impacts or will impact the consumption uh, of other vaccines, uh, maybe like the dengue vaccines? Do you think that, um, you know, because now everyone talks about vaccines, do you think this will help or hurt vaccine, um, you know, um, uh, consumption in the future? I think uh, the the answer to that is going to be quite nuanced. And, and I, um, I think that there are some very polar views on, on the value of vaccines. Um, the public health community is, uh, you know, is convinced about the value of vaccines, and COVID has only uh, intensified or amplified that that belief. Um, there are also parts of society that uh, that are more hesitant, um, uh, and uh, some of the attention to COVID vaccines and and, and uh, concerns over things like vaccine passports. Um, can again uh, amplify their, you know, strengthen their beliefs. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's probably a case of, of um, the, 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 those who are, are, are sort of already in one camp uh, more, uh, you know, more strongly stand in that camp and, and vice versa. Um, I think that vaccine hesitancy is actually a real challenge for, for the public health community. Um, vaccines depend on on uh, high uptake uh, to protect those who can't be vaccinated. Um, there are always some people who can't be vaccinated for, for personal uh, health reasons uh, and their protection uh, requires a significant degree of, of vaccination around them. Um, so I think this is probably one of the defining uh, challenges in the public health uh, sphere at the moment. Uh, in fact, this again was one of the the uh, top 10 public health threats uh, the WHO recognised back in 2019 was vaccine hesitancy. And I think we've seen that, that uh, occur even, even more in the context of COVID. Wow. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation, Derek. I think, especially in the last year, uh, COVID has definitely overshadowed, um, you know, a lot of existing uh, illnesses uh, and threats that we have continued having and will continue to continue to have. So it's um, it's been rather interesting to hear about, you know, all of the work that's happening for diseases that will continue uh, you know, being a problem and needs to be addressed and all of the work that goes behind the scenes in order to make this happen. Years and years of work actually that goes behind the scenes uh, to make this happen. Um, and I will definitely keep an eye out for when these approvals come through and uh, we'll do a little celebratory dance when that happens. Um, but uh, no, thank you so much for taking out the time and uh, chatting through all of this stuff. It's been, it's been terrific. And uh, thanks for all the really important work uh, that you guys do down there. Thanks, Pri. It's, uh, it's a source of tremendous pride for me personally that uh, uh, to be able to work on, on such, a, such an important uh, uh, vaccine. Um, so thank you very much. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contact us at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible.
This is us signing off from the Vaccine Challenge.